The Missouri, she's a mighty river. Away, rolling river. The red man's camp lies on her borders. Away, we're bound away across the wide. Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I will be finishing my my thoughts on, on Herman Melville's Moby Dick. So it, it feels like I've been working with this text for a long time. It's also putting to the end this this particular series on, on Herman Melville. Uh, the three novels we've looked at have been Redburn, White Jacket, and, and Moby Dick, his last three uh, maritime novels that he would publish. He would write one more, uh, Billy Budd, that would be remained unpublished at his death. Um, but yeah, that puts an end to him writing about about the sea. I'm going to come back to, to Melville soon. I think I'm going to take a little quick break and, and look at the three novels of William Brockton Brown. Um, but then, then I'll come back and look at Pierre and The Confidence Man and, and Israel Potter and those other Melville stories. But for now, we'll, we'll be just putting the end to this, this particular series on, on Moby Dick and, and Melville's later sea fiction. So my thoughts really in this last part, of course, what happens in the last part of Moby Dick is the Pequod and the crew are still in these these whale fisheries. They're doing a good job. They're they're doing, you know, they're collecting a lot of fish. They're killing a lot of whales. I shouldn't say fish, whales. But um, the, the narrator always calls them fish. They collect a lot of whales, um, and it's, it's on its way to be a successful voyage, but at the same time, it gets darker and darker and darker as Ahab becomes more and more focused on his quest to, 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 to kill this one particular whale, the one that took his leg and, 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 and has been, he's been obsessed with ever since. Um, a lot of interesting stuff happens in these last sections, uh, not only the final three chapters in which we actually see the destruction of the Pequod and the, 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 the desperate chase to, to kill Moby Dick. And, the, and it actually gets turned around at the end. And the last day, it seems that Moby Dick is chasing Ahab and the Pequod, or Ahab would say is chasing me. Um, but in the build-up to this point, in the build-up to those final chapters, we see a crew coming to terms with, with Ahab's desperation and his increasingly irrational decisions. We also see Ahab becoming more and more invested in his own quest and convincing himself to kind of go all in on this. And a major metaphor for this throughout this, these final 100 pages of the novel is technology. Technology comes again and again into this story, whether it's in a prosthetic leg or a new harpoon or his rejection of, of certain technologies like the compass or the, the quadrant. And even old-fashioned technology, he is destroyed at the end and he abandons it. And he just kind of is all we're left with is Ahab's will and his, his, his presence and, and his rage and his, and his um, you know, and his desire for revenge. So technology for me seems to come up a lot in these final, final sections. Um, and I think that's, that's a major theme that we can look at. Now, as C.L.R. James has shown us, Ahab is a tyrannical rejection of civilization. 
right? And, and C.L.R. Jaynes, as a Marxist, was not someone who embraced every aspect of civilization. He was certainly critical of it, but most Marxists do remain in the realm of society and progress in the Enlightenment. So there was something really dangerous about Ahab's rejection of, of progress, right? Even Starbucks' straight capitalistic um, pursuit of wealth, or just to a lesser degree, Stubbs. I mean, he at least was smart enough to go after the ambergris. Um, but he he really f he shows this as a very dangerous type of nihilism almost. Um, by rejecting civilization, he's rejecting progress and solidarity, right? And and he and Ahab we see in the final chapters does reject both, right? The crew sticks together quite strongly towards the end, but Ahab ignores their their needs and their their wishes, increasingly becoming single minded. He even rejects like the regular command structure, taking as his right-hand man, Pip. Pip's a minor character as the novel begins. He's like an African-American cabin boy. Uh, he gets promoted and he's like always with Ahab at the end. And it's a kind of a weird inverting of, of the class dynamic almost. But most importantly, it seems to me he's rejecting technology and the technology of progress. The things that make whaling, if not safe, at least less dangerous than it, than it used to be, that makes sailing you know, a rational pursuit. Now, he thinks little of the oil wasted when the barrels start leaking. We're going to talk about that in, in this part. There's a moment where the oil the oil's leaking and Starbucks says, we got to stop and fix this. And Ahab says, you know, we don't care about the profits, right? Even though less profits mean there's a large, smaller share at the end of the voyage for even Ahab. Even when Stubbs discovers ambergris in the dying whale, Ahab cuts his, this profitable short uh, search short. There's a, there's a moment when he's digging the ambergris and he could get more and then Ahab says, no, we're moving on. Now, a significant symbol of this rejection is Ahab's scorn for and even violence towards against technology. In the last moments, his struggle against the white whale is made without even the support of a small boat. He's alone, straddled to the whale with only a harpoon and his words. You know, and then those memorable words, those final words of the story are so memorable, but the, that's really all he has left in the final battle. He's abandoned all technology. Now, as the readers of this novel know, the text is really bound up with all these detailed descriptions of whaling industry. It's methods, it's science, it's work regimen. From the opening, you know, excerpts to the final chapters, technology is actually a driving force in the novel, but it's always under the control of the collective knowledge of the crew. Ahab sort of always shuns it, but as his dominance over the crew and over its fate becomes stronger and stronger, so does his attitude towards technology start to uh, shape the crew's experience more and more. He prefers to con conduct his search in more primitive ways, following the mystical advice of Fidela at times, uh, looking for signs and portents. He will just simply ask other ships if they've seen the white whale, and he sails by senses. He doesn't really use any technology. We see very little of it. Um, he's a little bit of a cyborg with the wooden leg, but beyond that, there's not much that he, he thinks of technology. The sailors have a much stronger connection to technological systems that they support with their labor and with the technological systems that make their work possible. The harpoon that Queequeg shaves with is an example. There's a chapter called The Lamp where Melville describes the aura that the oil lamp holds for, for whalemen. Quote, had you descended from the Queequeg's tie works to the Pequod's forecastles, where off the duty they were sleeping, for one single moment you would have almost thought you were standing in some illuminated shrine of canonized kings and counselors. There they lay with the triangular oaken vaults, each manner of chiseled muteness, a score of lamps flushing in his hooded eyes. See, 
with what entire freedom the whaleman takes his handful of lamps. Often, but old candles and vials, though. To the, cooper, to the copper cooler at the triworks, they replenish them there as mugs of ale at the yacht, at the vat. He burns, too, with the purest of oil, and it's unmanufactured and therefore unviditated state. And this is a kind of a, a description of kind of an industrial world almost, right? Where an oil-based economy, certainly, but it's very, it's actually quite high tech and it's all there on the ship. Melville's description of the chopping up the whale, clearing up the ship after harvesting the oil, filling up barrels, it has a certain beauty that that kind of comes from an artisan describing their craft. And, and we, we realize we're dealing with someone who knows what he's talking about. Now, as many observers may pass over these details, but they're there throughout the book. Quote, Beside her hoisted boats, an American whaler is outwardly distinguished by her triworks. She presents a curious anomaly of the most solid masonry joining with oak and hemp and constitution in the completed ship. It is as if the open field of brick kiln were transported in her planks. Now, in chapter, way back in chapter 40, when we see the entire crew engaged in revelry and discussion after hearing about Ahab's mad plan, you know, this window into the stream of consciousness of the forecastle is not an image of technocrats, but they are quite practical and worldly. They pine for women they don't have. They speak of work. Ahab's stream of consciousness opens with madness and irrationality, and that doesn't stop as the novel moves on. There's nothing really practical in his thinking. The crew, it's working class. It's sometimes vulgar. It's even stubs. You know, he's kind of jokey the whole time, but there's a practicality to it, right? Even when he picks up the doubloon, to look at it, he, he sees it as something that can be spent. Now, for Ahab, it's a symbol. Now, Ahab, in contrast, is transgressive. Quote, what I dared, I've willed, and what I willed for, I'll do. They think me mad. Starbuck does. But I'm demonic. I'm madness maddened, he says. Now, this is a powerful sentiment among those in resistance to power, perhaps. But with people, if this is held by people in power, it's very dangerous. And... There is something almost fascistic about this rejection of, of the Enlightenment that we see in Ahab. He's indifferent to the crew, but he uses them. He uses technology in the same way when he has the carpenter create a new leg out of, form out of whalebone. Now, as the novel closes, Ahab's rejection of technology and along with it, reason is symbolized by the destruction of the quadrant. Quote, foolish toys. Babies, playthings of haughty admirals and commodores and captains. The world brags of thee, of they the cunning and might. And what after all canst they do but tell the poor pitiful point what thou thyself happens to be in the wide planet and the hand that holds thee. No, not one jot more. Thou can't tell me where one drop of water or one grain of sand will be tomorrow noon. And yet the impotence thou insultest the sun. Science curse thee, though vain toy and curse... Be all the things that cast men's eyes aloft to the heaven, whose lie vividness but scorches him. Even kind of cursing the sun there. The quadrant, of course, is how you use the sun to find your latitude. Um, now, I mean, it's hard not to be unaffected by Ahab's transgressiveness, his will, his ambition. He is an attractive anti-hero. But it's this rejection of reason, of progress, of technology, and ultimately of solidarity that makes him such an odious character in the end, and a, really a poor model for any kind of radical transformation of society. Um, now, it's not that other characters maybe help us with that more. I'm not sure Moby Dick's the kind of book we go to for this kind of thinking. 
But certainly it remains a very strong warning against a very detached and ungrounded vision, right? Kind of a, a meaningless vision. Now, he, yeah, he has a vision and he's got this transgressiveness and he's got this personal authority and he's got this personal power, but it's, it's so misdirected and there's nothing out of it. I mean, even if his mission is just to kill as many whales as possible, right? Fill up his ship and come back to Nantucket Rich. Well, at least that has some kind of purpose to it, right? That the crew can get behind to go after this particular whale for, for irrational reasons and to do so in a way that completely rejects any tools at one's disposal, you know, the technological tools. It's, it's all kind of frightening almost. And I don't know, that, that's my opening thoughts about this, this, this final, final section. Um, specifically, we're looking at chapters 107 to 135, and then there's an epilogue. Um, so what happens in these? Well, we, where we left off last time was where Ahab decided he was going to get a new, new leg. His old leg was causing him problems. It wasn't holding together very well. It wasn't, and there was even like a pretty gruesome injury described in which... The, the it got loose and jammed him in the in the groin, causing an injury. So he goes to the carpenter and asks for for a new leg, and it's it's also a whalebone leg. So that's new. He's going to have a, a third leg at the end made out of wood, but but this this whalebone leg is 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 built for him. He's still sort of in the realm, I think, of of technology because. It is a technological process, and it's described here. In fact, that's how the carpenter sees Ahab, sees man, sees his whole work in terms of technology. Um, here's something of the, the thinking of the carpenter. He was a pure manipulator. His brain, if he ever had one, must have early oozed into its muscle of its fingers. He was like one of those unreasoning but still highly useful Moltrum in Parvo, Sheffield Contrivances assuming the exterior, but a little swelled of a common pocket knife, but containing not only blades of various sizes, but also screwdrivers, corkscrews, tweezers, awls, pens, rulers, nail filers, countersinkers. So if his superiors wanted to use the carpenter for a screwdriver, all he had to do was open that part of him and the screw was fast, or with tweezers, take him up the legs as if they were his own. But it yet as previously hinted, the omni-tooled and open and shut carpenter was, after all, no mere machine of an automaton. If he did have not a common soul in him, he had a subtle something that somehow anonymously did his duty. End quote. A very, uh, some fascinating ideas there about the relationship between like the artisan and his tools and his craft and to what degree is he an extension of the machine, right? Certainly modern industrial workers are. And Melville's going to write a whole story about this called the, the Tartuers of Maids. Maybe he already written it by this point. Um, you know, artisans usually aren't seen as plagued by that same problem. But here we have this, you know, the craft extending into the tool. And then you're kind of becoming one overall machine. The next chapter, chapter 108, is about Ahab and the carpenter talking. And, you know, the carpenter, although he has the skill to produce this new leg bone, it's Ahab who comes in as the author of turning the willful, opinionated verbally violent violent character and he's the carpenter's made discomfortable by by ahab and this is just one of many characters who are going to grow gradually more and more uncomfortable with ahab's approach his leadership and and the quest overall so after the part about ahab's leg um, ahab is is in his cabin and he's approached by starbucks who mentions this problem of 
of the leaking, like some of the barrels are leaking and it's like basically leaking gold, right? So Starbuck wants to just simply stop the ship for a while and repair the the casks and, and, and it's not a big deal. It's kind of actually fairly common uh, on these whaling ships, but Ahab will have none of it. He just refuses to do it, saying he doesn't care about the profits of, of the ship. And Starbucks, he leaves and he basically thinks that Ahab is sort of losing it. And he orders the repairs to the casks anyways. But but um, that that seems to be over Ahab's, Ahab's orders. And that's not going to be the... F- that's only going to be one of many more conflicts between Ahab and Starbuck before we reach the, the climax. And this relationship is going to become increasingly frayed as, as Ahab moves away from the rational mission of profit to the irrational one of revenge. Um, in chapter 110, this, this takes place during the repair to the leaky casks. And it's called Queequeg in his coffin. And this is a scene where he basically gets ill and he thinks he's going to die. And so he has a coffin made for him. And this coffin is going to be an important motif throughout the rest of the novel, you know, a symbol, if you will. You know, um, although, like all these symbols, they're things people give meaning to that that's probably not there. Um, he actually lays down in the coffin. And then at one point, he, he gets better, though. And he decides that he's, he, he's willed himself to, to health. And then he actually continues to use this coffin you know, even writing, drawing mark, marks on it, like a, like tattoos marks on his up body onto the coffin itself. Kind of to be his, his future coffin, but, but the coffin will be reused in various ways. Now, chapter tw- uh, it's 112 and 113. I'm going to come back to 111 in a bit, but um, that's called the Pacific. But that connects with a later chapter. Um, chapter 112 and 113 are about Ahab, you know, getting this new harpoon made. And, you know, it's kind of like his weapon that he's going to use to kill, kill um, Moby Dick. We get, uh, we're, we're told in no uncertain terms that, that this is becoming increasingly a one-way trip. Um, quote, death seems the only desirable sequel for a career like this, but death is the only launching into a region of the strange untried. It is but the first salutation to the possibilities of the immense, remote, the wild, the watery, the unsured. Therefore, to the death-longing eyes of such men who still have left in them some anterior compunctions against suicide, does the all-contributed and all-received ocean alluringly spread forth this new plan of imaginative taking terrors and wonderful new life adventures. And from the hearts of the infinite Pacifics, the thousand mermaids sing to them, Come hither, brokenhearted. Here is another life without the guilt of intermediate death. Here are the wonder supernatural without dying for them. Come hither, bury thyself in a life which to your now equally abhorred and abhorring landed world is more oblivious than death. Come hither, put up thy gravestone too within the churchyard and come hither till we marry thee. Some pretty bleak um, language suggesting this kind of mission out to the sea is a one-way trip. But it's something that's very drawing and attractive to people. And and there's there's a lot of scenes here. Well, while things are getting more and more bleak on the ship and darker there's this this pull of the ocean is something else that comes up a lot but anyways back to the harpoon the harpoon gets made it gets made from like nails and then he actually like douse you know how when you're making working with iron you douse it after it's been heated it's doused like in the blood of harpooners and, and things like that it's it's all kinds of wild stuff going on with the making of the harpoon. It's almost like almost out of something you'd see in mythology, right? Forging a, 
a sword in the in the blood of of allies or or enemies. Um, one fourteen is called the Gilder, and this this chapter, and I think along with one 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 called the Pacific. These two chapters really parallel each other well in that they speak to the inspiration of the sea. For in in Chapter 111, the Pacific, it's this meditative quality to the sea that seems to be attracting Ishmael. But in, in chapter 114, the Gilder, it's Ahab's reflections on the sea. And for him, it's, it's the language of the final harbor, the language of, of death, of the grave, of souls, of all kinds of more bleak language. So I think they... You know, it's just that other people are getting different things out of out of their vision of the sea. Ishmael, of course, who will live, has, has a different perspective than than Ahab, who is who's doomed. Um, chapter one fifteen, the Pequod meets the Bachelor. Um, now, it's another quick encounter. Like a lot of these encounters, basically, they start with Ahab immediately asking the other crew, like, "Have you seen the white whale?" And they'll say, "Yes, no, well, I heard rumors." Um, but this Bachelor is heading back to Nantucket with a full full of sperm oil. And this is another possible fate for the, for the Pequod. They could turn around at this point. It's not too late. There's nothing stopping them from returning at this point. They're very successful in their, their hunting of whales, it seems, and there's nothing stopping them from having a very successful trip and returning to Nantucket. And that's what we're reminded of with The Bachelor. Chapter 116 is a quick chapter called The Dying Whale. And this is just in the aftermath of them killing a few whales they had a really good day. The One of the whales kind of turns to the sun. And again, Ahab gives it meaning. So Ahab's almost incapable of not giving these types of things meaning. Quote, this is Ahab. O trebly hooped and welded hip of power, O high aspiring rainbow jet, That one striveth and the one jetteth all in vain. In vain, O whale, does out seek interceding With you all quickening sun, That only calls forth life but never gives it again. Yet dost thou darker half rock me with a prouder of darker fate. All thy unnameable amygdalines float beneath me here. I am buoyed by breath of once living things, exalted as air, but water now. Wow. So that's that's the dying whale. Uh, chapter 117, the whale watch. This is where Ahab gets his kind of prophecy from Fidela, um, his, the formal prophecy of when he's going to die. And basically he says, you're going to die after seeing two hearses, one not mortal and the other mortal made. And he thinks um, there won't be a mortal hearse uh, that they'll be able to see at sea. So this means he'll come back alive, right? If, unless there's a hearse at sea, which doesn't seem likely. So it would have to be something that happens to him Back, back at home. So he'll die back at home. Now in chapter 118, this is that, that chapter I alluded to before when I talked about technology, and that is the moment in which Ahab destroys the quadrant. This, this thing that allows you to determine the latitude of the ship. It's an important navigational device on these sailing ships, and he just destroys it, justifying it saying that I'm looking for where, for Moby, where Moby Dick is. You can only tell me where our ship is, not where Moby Dick will be tomorrow or a week from now, so you're useful for my quest, right? And he's going to find the only thing he can rely on for his quest is his own will and his judgment and his, his mind. Starbucks sees this and thinks Ahab's going mad. Stubbs, you know, still optimistic. 
Uh, and then we get to the typhoon. This, this covers several chapters, actually, uh, mostly 119. The candles come from these, kind of these, these lights that appear. I think it's through lightning on the top of the mast. So it looks like there's three candles on the ship. They're in this typhoon. Ahab refuses to use lightning rods. That's another rejection of technology. We've already seen others. But the three masts light up to become these three candles. And he gives that more meaning as well. I mean, again, it's just a, it's just a natural event, but it's given, it's given meaning by, by Ahab. But also the kind of irrational decision to reject the use of lightning rods and just to go with faith is, is the important point here. So the storm goes on for a few chapters, some of them quite short. And then in chapter 123, it's called the musket. Starbuck sees these various muskets and he thinks that he should just kill Ahab, that Ahab's gone mad, that he's going to kill the entire crew, and that the moral thing to do is to, to kill him. And perhaps that is the moral thing to do. Can Starbuck do the moral thing? It's not clear he can. In fact, he, he's torn by, between duty and the law. That His whole worldview is based on kind of the duty and purpose ingrained in law and capitalist society. Um, Ahab breaks that, and he breaks his faith in it. Right? Because he's a hierarchical figure, he's a figure from the top that doesn't share those values and you know, is doing his own thing with, with the ship. But, um, you know, Starbuck includes, Flat obedience to thy own flat commands, this is all thou breathest. I, and saith that men have vowed as they vowed, saith all of us are Ahabs. Great God forbid, but there's no other way, no lawful way. Make him a prisoner to take home what? Hope to wrest this old man's living power from his own living hands? Only a fool would try that. And then he goes on and thinks of different ways he can perhaps stop this within the bounds of law and he can't think of anything. Anything would be mutiny or, or murder. And, and even worse, perhaps, is a violation of his own oath to his captain. Now, after the storm in chapter 124, the needle, we find that Ahab has lost his compass during the storm. So he's lost another major technology of navigation. He's already destroyed the quadrant. Now he, he loses the compass. So he's got nothing really left to find his, his way. In the next chapter, Log and Lane, he tries to use a very old-fashioned technique of, of using like rope lines and logs and things to measure distance traveled and things. But even that fails. It breaks. And at the end, the ship is left with no technology at all that can direct its way. All that is really left at this point is Ahab's own will and his, his assertion of his will. And, you know, and that leads us right to Moby Dick. And we're getting close to that point. There's only 10 chapters left. So we're being doused by symbol after symbol, whether it's the technology or it's the leg or it's the lights or the typhoon itself or, or whatever. And that's going to continue. The, the speed by which these symbols become more and more important, at least in the character's understanding of their position, is, is significant. And 126 is a chapter called The Life Buoy. And what happens here is uh, there's, a, there's a really fun scene early on where they see these seals and they think they're mermaids. Some of the crew think it's mermaids. And there's all these different interpretations of what these, these mean. Um, but then a man falls overboard and they try to save him by using the life buoy. And the life buoy gets lost. And, and then the decision is to use Queequeg's coffin to and remake it, right? Refurbish it into a life buoy because they need to have one on the ship and that was available. And, you know, as a coffin, it wasn't doing anyone any good. So that gets re, re, remade to, um, 
the life buoy gets remade with a coffin. I mean, obviously, the, the symbolism there is almost self-explanatory, right? There's um, the, the thing that's supposed to save life is replaced by the thing that holds us when, when we die. I haven't said much about Pip, but Pip has been kind of rising up in the ship. Pip started as this cabin boy. He's black. Um, but Ahab likes him, and Ahab pounces philosophy off him and actually gets philosophical inspiration from Pip himself and things he doesn't get from the other crew, particularly the other harpooners or from Starbuck. So he starts to hang out more and more with, with Pip, and Pip's station in the ship rises. So we see kind of a muddling of the strict class structure that we were introduced to earlier in the story. It all gets kind of fractured um, towards the end. Let's okay. uh, 128, they meet the Rachel. The, the crew meets the, the ship meets the Rachel. Um, so this is the moment where Ahab rejects all humanity. The Rachel does tell Ahab that Moby Dick is near, that they've, they've seen him and that he's, he's nearby. Um, but then they say, I need, the captain says, I need your help, Captain Ahab. Like, my son was on a life raft, lifeboat. We've lost him. We need to find him. We need to find my last son. He actually says, I refuse to leave the ship until you, you agree to help me. And then Ahab just turns his back on him and says, no, I, I have to go for Moby Dick. Moby Dick is near, and I have to, you know, move on. Now, of course, the Rachel is going to be the ship that eventually stays around here because they're looking for this this cast, castaway boat that's going to save Ishmael, our narrator, right? Because the narrator has to survive. There has to be someone to tell this tale, right? There has to be at least one person who makes it. But at this moment, Ahab really rejects humanity. It's another way he turns his back on a possible, you know, you know it would be a mission that has some meaning, right? Saving a life. But, but he doesn't want to know that. Um, more symbolism in chapter 130 when... Uh, the crew is all watching out for Moby Dick, all got their, their minds on the, the gold doubloon that, that will be theirs. Um, and then Ahab's head is taken by this like bird of some sort. And Ishmael gives us a little bit of meaning, but we don't really know what Ahab thinks of the loss of the hat, whether it's um, bad news. Um, in 131, in the delight, we meet the last ship that Pequod will run into. And this one, it's another quick meaning, um, but they can announce that that Moby Dick is close. And no, actually, I think it's the Rachel that tells them Moby Dick is close. I think the, the, the light might just pass by. Oh, no, they do have a little bit of brief exchange about Moby Dick. So Ahab says, has thou seen the white whale? And they said, yes, essentially. And he says, has thou killed him? And they say, the harpoon that's not yet fo that is not yet forged, I'll ever do that. And then... Then Ahab holds up his harpoon and vows that his harpoon will be the one that kills, kills Moby Dick. Um, the delight, though, sees this coffin that's a life buoy on the side of the boat and thinks that this ship is doomed. Because they're also, you know, it's not just the people on the Pequod who give meaning to things. It's, it's these other ships as well. Chapter 132, The Symphony. This is one of, I think, the, the most interesting chapters in the later part of the novel. And this is where Ahab and Starbuck have a, a conversation where it seems there's some common ground is, is met. We actually learn about things like Ahab's past, the fact that he's married, the fact that he actually seems to regret that he hasn't had time for his family. And this is a life that is shared by many whalemen. It wasn't just, just Ahab. Many people who were at sea for years at a time never saw their wife. Here's what he says. Starbuck, out of those 40 years, I've not spent three ashore. 
When I think of this life I led, the desolation of solitude it has been, the masoned wall town of a captain's exclusiveness, which admits a small entrance to any sympathy from the green country without, oh, weariness, heaviness, Guinea Coast slavery of solitary command. When I think of all this, only half suspected, but not so keenly known to me before, and how for 40 years I have fed upon dry salted fare, fit emblem of the dry nourishment of my soul. Yeah, poor Ahab. But, and then Starbuck says, like, you don't have to do this. We, we, can, we can go home. You're not doomed to this. And in the end, though, Ahab realizes that he is fated to pursue this um, Moby Dick, his enemy. Is Ahab Ahab? Is it I, God, or who that lifts this arm? But if the great sun move not himself, but is as an errant boy in heaven, not one single star can revolve but by some invisible power. How then can one, can this one small heart beat? How can the small brain think thoughts unless God does the beating, does the thinking, does the living, and not I? By heaven, man, we are turned round and round in this world like yonder windless, and fate is the handspike. And all the time low that smiling sky and the unsounded sea. End quote. So that's, you know, there, there's really no other choice for Ahab. He's predestined to this in his mind. Then we have the final three chapters of the novel. Um, they're just called the chase first day, the chase second day, and the chase third day. They encounter Moby Dick over three days. Each day they lose more and more ships. I'll briefly go through the events. On the day one, they, they spot Moby Dick. Actually, it's Ahab sees it first, and he claims the, the doubloon. And there's a little bit of fun with different people seeing Moby Dick and having claimed to the, um, the gold doubloon. But Ahab got it first because he saw... Um, Moby Dick before anyone else. Um, Moby Dick destroys Ahab's boat during this encounter, so they're down to like three boats. Um, and they're rescued, and they get back onto the, sh the ship, and Moby Dick goes away. Day two, they find the whale again. They get, off their, they get out their boats free now. Another boat's destroyed, and actually the one that Ahab was on is capsized. Um, Fidela is killed. Ahab's uh, whalebone leg is broken, um, and and now they have so they have two boats. One was capsized but saved, so they just have two left. Um, a new leg is made this time from like the remains of one of the destroyed boats. So he's now got a wood leg, right? Not from the animal kingdom, right? His leg is now man-made. I think there's some. If we want to have fun with symbols, we can say like this is the. Um, you know, technology, right? Human made, or it's American wood. Maybe that's it. I don't know. I, I think overall, Melville thinks it's kind of stupid and, and actually dangerous to try to give these things meaning where it doesn't really exist. The final day, um, they, they find Moby Dick again. Ahab realizes that at this point, Moby Dick is now chasing them, or at least chasing him. He sees that Fidel's body is actually on the on the whale itself and this is like wrapped up in the on the whale's body he's been carried along the whole day and so that this is actually the hearse this is the hearse made but the first hearse was made by not humans right the second hearse is revealed to be the ship as the moby dick's able to create this whirlpool that sinks the ship um, and everyone dies except ishmael but you know, these three chapters, they're about 30 pages in the Library of America. A lot of good stuff here. We see the crew working together at various points. We see all kinds of fun symbolism being played with. 
Yeah, like I love this passage here, which was the crew united in their struggle. They were one man, not 30, for as the ship that held them all, they were all put together of a contrasting thing, oak and maple, pine, iron and pitch and hemp. Yet all these ran into each other in one concrete hall, which shot on its way, both balanced and directed by the long central keel. Even so, all the individualities of the crew, this man's valor, that man's fear, guilt and guiltlessness, all varieties were welded into oneness. And we're all directed to that fatal goal, which Ahab, their one Lord and keel, did point to. And then earlier, we actually have a discussion, like this, a reference to the, the trains and the steel Leviathan. Here they are fighting the old-fashioned nature's Leviathan, but we got a reference to the, to the modernity. You know, there's not, not too much of it in this book, direct comments on it, but thinking of technology... Um, quote, as, as the mighty iron leviathan of the modern railroad is so familiarly known in every pace that with watches in their hands men time his rate as doctors that of a baby's pulse and light, lightly save it, the up train or the down train will reach such a spot or such an hour even so. Almost there are occasions with these nectucketers time that other leviathan that deep according to the observed humor of their speed. End quote. And so it's like that they're so good at hunting these whales, they can actually time them and chase them. And it, it's partially why, an explanation about how they're able to pace themselves and know how fast to, to travel to follow these, these, um, these whales through, through the seas to chase them down, right? This would have been a, a, a fast fish um, claimed by the Pequod. And that's it. Everyone dies at the end, obviously, except Ishmael. Ishmael is picked up by the Rachel because the Rachel's still around this area looking for the the, the captain's lost son in, the, in, a, in a lifeboat. Well, I don't know what to say. I've been talking about Moby Dick so much. I'm talking about Melville so much these this past month and a half. Um, I don't know. It's a great novel. Everyone should read it at least once to, just for the experience of it, I think. Um, what do I like about it? Well, I like the I, I like the stuff I was talking about today. The, the this technology, the, the aspect of technology, and the relationship of the characters to technology. I like I like the the contrast between like Flask and Starbuck and and, and Ahab, these these people in the hierarchy of the ship. Um, I I like the, the look at the international proletariat a lot, too. I, I think that's something that I think takes a back burner in the second half of the ship. I mean, the harpoonists are there, but they're just kind of, they're doing their thing. But Tashtigo, Dagu, Queequeg, Fidela, these, these characters kind of making up a, a model of the international proletariat is something I, I really enjoy. I even like the slices of life about just the, the whale industry as a whole. And I think its significance really does rest in the character of Ahab and how we understand him, how we understand him in the context of institutions. And I think the, the, the warning that Ahab presents is, is how do we protect our institutions from um, not just the madman, but the, the one who doesn't respect its own logic, right? And, you know, as, as horrible as capitalism is and has been throughout history, right, there's something, you know, the capitalist can be understood. Right? I think Starbuck is, is that character. He can be understood and reasoned with and, and talked to. Ahab, who rises up in this system, you know, doesn't share those values. But once he's in command, he's virtually unstoppable. 
right? And I think that's a real danger in, in all of our institutions, frankly. And I think just looking at our current president, um, Donald Trump is, is a good example of that, right? Someone can rise up in a system, right? But not necessarily respect that system or its values at all. And once there, if you play by the normal rules, like Starbucks tries to do at the end, thinking about how can I stop Ahab? It's, it's not going to work, right? Very few of us can match that, that, that single-mindedness that Ahab presents. And, you know, he's almost un- understandable. He can't be understood in the context of, of the normal logic of the ship. I mean, the only reason he's able to get the crew to even go along with this is by promising gold to them and, and wealth, right? And, and at least pretending to, to be interested in profit. And that's, again, what makes Ahab so dangerous. And I think understanding him and understanding how this character informs our institutions, I think, is, is the heart of why this story is important to us today and, and, and still should be read. Of course, there's a lot of other things to, to say about this book. I mean, it could be talked about endlessly almost. Um, but I, you know, try to read it for fun, I think, if you haven't read it yet. So um, that's all I'm going to say about Moby Dick and Melville for now at least. Um, so what's next? Well, next I'm going to look at, at uh, Charles Brockton Brown's uh, novels, three of them anyways. The, there's a, what, the Library of America collection has three of his novels collected in them, Wieland, um, Edgar Huntley, and Arthur Marin. Um, three novels are all names of people. So it might be getting confusing, but we'll look at Wieland first, which is a really fun novel with a lot of kind of Gothic elements. It's actually a novel of the American Gothic tradition. It's got some supernatural things in it, so it's a lot of fun, that, that particular novel. So we'll look at that in in the next episodes. So I'll do that over two episodes, I think. So read the first half of Wieland by Charles Brockton Brown if you want to read along with me. Um, but if you have any thoughts about Moby Dick, I'm certainly there's a lot I haven't talked about or skipped over. I mean, really, this book could be talked about endlessly. Uh, that's part of the challenge of, of going at it in a format like this a more casual format. So uh, just, but if you do have your thoughts about it, leave them below or send me an email at hundredpagescast at gmail.com. And that's, that'll be it for Melville for now. Um, when I'm done with Brockton Brown, Charles Brockton Brown, I'll, I'll come back and I'll do the, the late works of, of Melville. Thanks as always for listening. I'll see you next time. At last there came a Yankee skipper away Flipper